Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure how to start this sermon, so I'm just going to start by reading to you the passage that we're going to take a look at today. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does anyone gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the north and turns to, to, the, to the south and turns to the north. Around and around it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. The place, to the place the streams come from, where there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It is it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of people of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on the human race. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. In the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin a study of the book of Ecclesiastes, and sometimes I wonder, should I have done this? This is a book that uh, many folks have read, and as soon as they start in on chapter one, they think, huh? This is in the Bible? And now you want to preach on it? Why would you do such a thing? And it is an enigmatic book. It is a difficult book to understand, to study, and there's lots of opinions on it. And uh, it's one of these books, though, that I think has modern relevance, unlike many other books in the Bible. Uh, That's almost wrong to say, isn't it? It has supreme relevance. Well, have you ever had a question for God? You know, I've often, when I was a kid, I, I pictured uh, being in heaven in that first few moments in heaven. I, I used to think that I would just have my, my brain zapped by God and I would know all stuff that I want to know. And, and then I realized, well, if I knew everything I wanted to know and if I knew everything, then I would be 
uh, I would be omniscient and that would make me on the level of God. And I know that that can't be the case because uh, no one else ever can be omniscient. Only God can be omniscient. So if that's a bummer to you that when you get to heaven, you won't know everything, uh, just consider yourself forewarned. When you get to heaven, you won't know everything. There won't be some kind of zap that happens in a a twinkling of an eye and you'll know everything. Uh, You'll still not know everything. I'll still not know everything. We will still be spending our days, our eternity learning and growing and wondering. I don't know how that makes you feel. To me, that has kind of a a dual experience. On the one hand, that makes me excited because that means uh, I get to keep learning and growing and experiencing new things. On the other hand, it kind of bums me out a little bit because you kind of don't, don't you just kind of sort of want to know everything someday? At least now, (laughs) And and many times, uh, some of the greatest, deepest, most troubling questions we have are questions that only God can answer. And part of me is a little worried that I may never know the answer to some of those questions. Even when I get to heaven, there's a chance that God might, for whatever reason, decide, "Eh, you're going to get to spend a long time, eternity, just wondering about that. That kind of freaks me out a little bit. Uh, or in the King James, freaketh me out a little bit. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how you feel about some of your questions about God and wanting resolution with some of your questions for God. It's one of those things that we just kind of throw out. I've heard pastors, I've heard it come out of my own mouth sometimes. I've heard it from uh, folks in churches often of, well, you know, when we all get to heaven, we'll just have all the answers. We'll we'll now understand why this happened to so-and-so, why that happened to you, and why this happened. If you can show me in the Bible where it tells us that that will be the case, um, I would gladly change my position on that. But um, I have yet to see that in the scriptures, that we'll know stuff that we don't currently know. And when you come to this book of Ecclesiastes, 12% of the book is questions. 12% of this short 12-chapter book is questions. Questions that uh, are deep, perplexing, philosophical questions that humanity has wrestled with since time began. And you might find in the book that some of the answers aren't terribly helpful. You might find that they actually lead you to just more frustration. And I would make the argument that if I were a person that was putting the Bible together right now, today, like uh, no one had ever read it before, and if I was putting it together, I would put Ecclesiastes at the very beginning of the Bible. I would stick it right at the beginning of the Bible because this is a question book. And the book is meant to raise questions, but it doesn't give satisfactory answers. That's what the rest of the Bible does. (laughs) And that's why I would put this one at the beginning of the Bible. So that you come primed and ready with these questions. Yeah, it's a good question. I wish somebody had the answer to that. Maybe I should read on, see what this has to say about that. Instead, we start with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we get very uh, didactic 
right away. Um, it's not as didactic in the Hebrew. It's actually a poem, and it, it's actually uh, you know kind of this amazing uh, poetic story, this device that's used to explain the beginning of, of the heavens, the earth, of you, of me, of sin, of death, and all those things. Uh, and even that often leads me with more questions than answers. And so often when I read Ecclesiastes, I think, boy, it'd be helpful if this was at the very beginning. Because part of when we come back and read Ecclesiastes in our day and age, because we have Jesus, we just had Easter, and we have all the answers. I mean, churchy people, they have all the answers, right? How many of you know that churchy people have all the answers? How many of you have met that person? I mean, maybe you're not it, but you've met that churchy person who has all the answers. And if your response to that churchy person was the same response that my response was to them, it's just, get out of my face. And you want to lay hands on them rapidly and repeatedly in the name of Jesus, right? <laughs> Jesus loves you. Of course, he loves everyone, you know? And, and you just, it's frustrating when know-it-alls are frustrating people. And religious know-it-alls are really frustrating people. Because they have a reason to know it all, and you need to know it too. And God forbid, and please forgive me, if I've ever come across as a religious know-it-all. If I've ever stepped into a situation in your life, in your home, in your pain, in your suffering, in your tragedy, if I've ever stepped in and, well, you know, just all things work together for good for those who love Jesus. (laughs) And the Bible says that, and I believe it, but... Right that moment, that is not what you want to hear. I've been there. I've had experiences in my life where if somebody came and said that, I'd be like, well, he ain't going to work this out for your good right now. I'm about to get rowdy right now. And there's times that the, 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 the callous, the well-intended, but the misdirected answer and hurt. Sometimes words are are so shallow for pain that is so deep. And Ecclesiastes is a book that causes us to just sit in the yuck and mire of some of those questions. And I honestly think that what God wants to do in this book is meet you in those questions. Because when we ask those questions, sometimes we feel really bad and guilty. I'm a Christian and I should know this. I shouldn't feel bad about this. I shouldn't struggle with this. Why do I ask this question? And if you would just read a book that was written 3,000 years ago, you'd be like, hey, I'm in really good company. In fact, if you really truly believe about this book, what it teaches and what I believe about this book, that this is the inspired word of God, that God breathed this word into being, that God was the one that actually wrote all of this book, this is God's questions for you and I to wrestle through. And he doesn't give us good answers. And it's like God himself understands that this world is frustrating and difficult and hard and yucky and there's questions and we have questions about him and we have questions about what it is about and what's the meaning and what's the point and he lets us sit in these questions. And it's almost like he's saying, it's okay. 
I'm a big enough boy. Ask the questions. And some of us treat God like we have to treat him with kid gloves on. Like he's a little delicate infant or something. Oh, we wouldn't want to upset God with that question. Let the baby sleep. (laughs) And God pens all these questions for us. It's like... You thought you'd thought a question up that no one had ever thought of before. You thought you'd you'd gotten me with one that nobody else had come up with before. And this passage was clearly not a pick me up kind of passage. Have you have you noticed how much of the book of Ecclesiastes is actually quoted in the New Testament? I'm sure you have, because only one time is it quoted in the New Testament. <laughs> In Romans, once, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is quoted one time. Because in the New Testament, everybody's a rah, rah, yay, Jesus. It's as happy, we just won the Super Bowl, things are going well. And nobody wants to put a downer on that thing. And yet, it's in there. It's in the Bible. It's in the canon. God kept this, preserved it, made sure it made it here to 2013 so that you and I could sit here and read it and learn from it. And that's what we're going to try to do the next few weeks. Now, did you get what might be one of the themes in chapter 1? Word that happened several times? Meaningless. (laughs) That's the theme of the day. If you can just get that. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. In the Hebrew, that is uh, Hebel, which is actually the same name of Abel in Genesis. Just, wow, that's interesting. And Hebel is this word that is very difficult uh, to translate. Uh, So we should just call it Hebel and be done with it, but uh, that doesn't make any sense to you, right? So translators throughout the years have tried to figure out how to translate Hebel. And so you've heard, you know, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, Uh, meaningless. Uh, Modern translations say absurd, everything's absurd. Um, And there's all sorts of ways people have tried to, to get this word Hebel into English. And really, at its root, it means vapor or puff of puff of breath. It's vapor, it's vapor, everything is vapor. So, you know, that makes us all feel better about ourselves and about the world we live in today. And and there are things that are on your and my screen that we go, yeah, that is meaningless, right? Uh, Marnie and the kids and I, we we watched a movie, Wreck-It Ralph, the other night. And... For Marnie, it's, it's meaningless, meaningless. Wreck-It Ralph is meaningless because it's about video games and she doesn't get video games and I grew up playing video games and Sam plays video games and so we're like, wow, this is kind of fun. It's a movie about video games. And so Marnie went to bed. <laughs> Sleep is not meaningless. And we stayed up because Wreck-It Ralph had meaning for us. And... Uh, all of us have something in our lives that we think that's just meaningless. It's vanity. It's, it's vapor. It's worthless. It's absurd. And did you see the first thing that he gets into about meaningless? Your job. Work. Anybody ever been there? This is meaningless. This is vapor. This is a chasing after the wind. This amounts to nothing. 
you know that ministry feels that way sometimes too? I've been helping, uh, very little, helping with doing some work at my house. And can I just tell you how invigorating it is? Because you get to see progress. I mean, you, you put down linoleum and you're like, wow, that wasn't there earlier today, but now it's here. You get to put in countertop and it's like, now there's countertop where there once was not. I mean, it's really exciting. It's fun. It's energizing. It's so different than being a pastor. Because there's no immediate feedback. I mean, there are. Some of you come up, hey, nice one, pastor. And sometimes I'm like, really? (laughs) Are you just being nice to me? Or do you really think that? And there's other times I'll say one thing, and then I read on Facebook, you're doing the exact opposite. And I'm like, I don't see the disconnect here, but... Works for them. Cool. I'm just now got myself defriended by lots of you. I understand that. <laughs> well, if he's going to, then I'm out of here. I mean, there's times it feels like chasing after the wind, and we all experience that in our work. There's times that it feels meaningless. In fact, verse 3 is one of the big themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the big question governing Ecclesiastes. It's the huge question that we all have to wrestle with at some point, and it is this. What does anyone gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? <sighs> Ignorance is bliss, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you rather not wake up in the morning and think about that? Just go about your day, doing your thing. But here, the teacher which is another interesting Hebrew word. Uh, it's kohelthel. Kohel, I always say it wrong. Kohelo. And teacher is not a very good uh, way of, of, of rendering this word, I don't think. In, in older versions, it's preacher, and that's a really bad one because um, preacher has to kind of sort of have an answer and a point at what they're saying. Well, I guess not all of them. I try. Um, I think the best way to, to translate that word is more like philosophy professor. Everybody, anybody ever take philosophy in college? And you sit there and like smoke's pouring out of your ears if you're paying attention. If you're not, you're just like, oh, when is this going to be over? But if you're paying attention, it's like, you know, I think, therefore I am, huh? Uh, Then you throw in some Latin and some other phrases and you're just, what? Huh? If a tree falls in the forest and nobody's... There to hear it? Does it make a sound? I don't know. Get a microphone, some recording equipment. Let's find out. I don't. Well, if the microphone or recording equipment wasn't there, does the tree? I don't know. I don't care. How is this relevant to my life? And that's what philosophy does. It ponders and it comes up with big questions and nobody knows the answers to these things. And so he's a philosophy professor. That's the best way to see him. And it's frustrating, the questions he asks. And that's why this would be a really good book at the beginning of the Bible. Because it leaves you going, huh? What? Maybe I should read on. Maybe there's some more answers in here. Because that was really dissatisfying. So the philosophy professor begins with a bang. 
I like to try to begin with a bang as a preacher. Sometimes some of my sermons get off to a better start than others, and some of you guys just instantly go to sleep. I see that, and I understand that, and I've been there. And uh, one thing that a preacher or a teacher, a public instructor, one of the things they tell you to do is try to hook your audience attention very quickly. And in fact, they are doing studies, and they find that people's attention spans are getting smaller. Mm. Not yours, because you're one of the best congregations in the world. But other people's attention spans are getting smaller. And they say that you've got like 5 to 15 seconds to grab people and to keep them with you. And you've got to keep doing that throughout your presentation. You have to keep bringing them back in, because their brain goes, Ooh, oh, look at that. Fans. I never noticed that before. And then you got to bring them back. And you got to work hard to keep coming. And just. And so, one of the techniques that preachers and other teachers and public speakers use is to exaggerate stuff. Because you go, whoa. So, when he says meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, you think you've got their attention? Well. I am not so sure about that. Let me think here. That's not what my mom said. And that teacher I had in high school, that the teacher said my life had purpose and I could be whoever I wanted and I could accomplish anything and everybody's special in their own way. And I get to college and he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I think, well, why am I spending four grand to pay you to tell me it's meaningless? And if it was so meaningless, why are you busy instructing us? And so there's some exaggerations in here for a fact. Like last Sunday, I did this at church. Actually, I believe this, but I also used some exaggeration. I said, hey, if you decide that Jesus Christ didn't really rise from the dead, don't come anymore. You're wasting your time. Sleep in next Easter. And I meant it. But I also was exaggerating to a degree. But at least I'm trying to say, hey, realize that your thoughts and your beliefs have consequences. And one of them is, you could sleep in on Easter if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And you will also agree with this statement. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And then he goes on and he starts to develop his argument. He uses a poem. Wouldn't it be neat if we used poetry more in school? Not really to me, but uh, some other people feel that way. I'd be like, oh, please. I don't like poetry much. I like Hebrew poetry because it doesn't rhyme, but it's another discussion. He goes on and he starts to talk about giving proof of how life is meaningless, in case you didn't agree with him. When he first said meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now he's going to prove the point to you. Generations come, generations go, nobody remembers them. You got a point there. I remember my great-grandfather's name. His name is Rush Weinkoop. My great-grandmother's name, I'm a little fuzzy there because I never knew her personally. She died before I was around. But my great-grandfather was Rush Weinkoop. He pastored a church in Springfield, Colorado, briefly. He lived in Fruta. And, after, and he was a pastor for the Assemblies of God. And after that, I got very little, much more information on the guy. My great-great-grandfather 
And that's just on my wine coop side. My great-grandfather on the Steiger side was Peter Steiger. And he lived in Russia and was a German. And uh, he eventually came over to this country. And he fathered a couple boys who one day in cold North Dakota were bored in the wintertime. And they invented the Steiger tractor. But beyond that, I got nothing on Peter. And then my great-great-grandfathers... If this was a pop quiz and somebody said, hey, name your great-great-grandfather. Uh, wine coop? <laughs> <laughs> name your great-great-great-grandfather. Mm, I'm going with wine coop again. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Anybody remember the names of the charter members of First Christian Church? People that first started this church in 1900. What year was it? Anybody? We wrote it down somewhere. It's in a book. <laughs> generations come, generations go, and you're not remembered. In 40 years, 40 years after you die, who's going to remember you? 80 years after you die, who's going to remember you? Now let's stretch time a little longer, shall we? 400 years from now. Who's going to remember you? You know, they estimate that the population of the United States at the time of the Revolutionary War was 1.2 million people. How many people do we remember? We still talk about the founding fathers. There was a few more people around than what we remember. And chances are, chances are insanely good that you will not be remembered 200 years from now. I mean, a, an archaeologist digging in the dirt of what used to be your home will be able to infer your existence. Oh, there was a guy named Steve Weinberg. Never heard of him. Didn't amount to much, apparently. He didn't have much of an impact on the world. He didn't really do accomplish anything. I mean, if he accomplished something, at least he would have a Wikipedia, uh, you know, <laughs> entry. Somebody would thought, I'm going to write. Have you ever tried to write your own Wikipedia? They delete it, just in case you're interested. <laughs> I didn't try to write mine. I just met the guy who tried, and they just deleted it. <laughs> Unless you're important. And the teacher is saying, you think you're big stuff. You're a vapor. You're a mist. You're meaningless. Then he says, <laughs> some of you are looking really disappointed today. <laughs> then he says, under the sun, all your toil. He's not just talking about our work. He's talking about everything, every activity, all the stuff that we do under the sun. Everything. Meaningless. And I could end the message there bait you to come back next week because maybe we'll come up with more ideas. And this is one of the questions. What is the meaning of life? And if you're really interested for some interesting le reading later today, why don't you just, just Google that phrase or being that phrase, meaning of life. <laughs> just see what people come up with. It's really funny because one of the things that I, 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 I saw there was people are wrestling with um, 
global warming and climate change. And many of those people who are really worried about global warming and climate change also believe that we just evolved out of this green goo. And the key ingredient in the green goo was millions and billions or billions and billions of years. And I keep wondering, why are you so worried about saving the earth? And I think the philosophy pre, pre, the professor from Ecclesiastes would ask the same question. Why are you so worried? It's all meaningless. I mean, if you just evolve from some green split pea soup, and you will one day just die, and you just become one with nothingness, or whatever it is is going on for you, why would it be meaningful what happens between those two events, your birth and your death? And look at the cycles that he talks about. The sun rises, the sun sets, the water falls, the water goes away, the water comes back. All these, the wind blows, it goes this way, that way, the other thing. It's all a cycle. It just keeps happening over and over again. This world is winding down. It's meaningless, meaningless. One of the things this philosophy professor wants you to wonder and wrestle with is do my ideas really line up with the way I'm living my life? Do I really live my life in inherently in, in, in integrity in a way that intersects what I believe? And he keeps pushing for that. You see, if your worldview is one that um, God didn't make us, God doesn't exist, and one day we're just going to die and what is the point? It's meaningless. But if your worldview is that God created this world and that God loves this world, that God loves each and every one of us, that God knows, and for some of you it's not that hard, every single hair on your head. And God knows that information. And if that's true, that he knows every single hair on your head, not only that, knows everything about you, everything you've ever done, everything you're going to do, everything you thought about doing. And he knows all this stuff, and yet he still loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins because he loves you. Not because he's mad at you, not because he wants to get you, because if he wanted to do that, he would have done it already. It's not like it's hard for him to know where you're at any moment. It's not like the U.S. looking for Osama bin Laden. Where could he be? He's got GPS locator. You've got LoJack on you with God. <laughs> he knows where you're at. He could take you out. But he loves you. He sent Jesus to die on the cross. He sent Jesus to live the life that you and I should have lived. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins because God loves us. And then Jesus, not only did he die, he rose again physically from the dead. He really did. And because of this, because of belief in this, life has meaning. Mm. It's, like, it's like watching television in black and white and then all of a sudden somebody hits this knob and color comes on. Remember when they did that in The Wizard of Oz? It's like, oh. And by the way, that was really significant back then because they'd never done it before. And people went, whoa. 
And so I ask you, are you being consistent with your beliefs? Are you living a life that has meaning and purpose or should you not bother? Is it meaningless? If your life feels empty and hollow and meaningless, number one, welcome to the club. Because we can all feel that. We can all feel that. That's what Ecclesiastes says. We all feel that sometimes. Sometimes work is like a banging of the head against the wall. That's a paraphrase. But that's chasing after the wind. Sometimes that's how life feels. Welcome to the club. Sometimes it feels hollow and cheap and meaningless and frustrating and irritating and difficult. If you read to the end of this book, not to Ecclesiastes, because remember, that's the intro. If you keep reading the rest of Scripture, you'll find answers. You'll find purpose and meaning in life. And it's not from trying to save your own life. It's from losing it in the arms of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these words can be so discouraging in this book. And I do pray that each week we would hear tones of the gospel played in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, at the very least, help us see that Ecclesiastes is a look at how purposeless and meaningless life for people apart from God is. How futile it is to live our lives without faith in Christ. Help us also see that this book so explains so well what's going on in our world, why young men walk into elementary schools and kill people, kill children. Because if you think life is meaningless, that's how you'd act. And forgive us, forgive our country and society, our world, when we are alarmed at the fruits that bad horrible thinking leads to. And may the church and your people inject and infuse this world with truth that it matters. What we believe matters. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Peace in knowing that there is meaning and purpose and value in life and that it is precious. Because you are precious in God's sight. Amen. Amen.